guess it's kind of a unique experience growing up as a pastor's kid. And uh, when, when I was a kid, our church had three services. We had a Sunday morning service, a Sunday evening service, and a Wednesday night service. So I got to hear my dad preach three times a week. Uh, and then we would get to, uh, well, we'd have to go along with my dad to these revivals and, and meetups and so forth where there were like 15 sermons a day, or at least it seemed like there were. Uh, and so as a kid, we, you know, when you're eight, you need some way to break up the monotony. There's a lot of content and you're trying to, you know, so sometimes preachers would tell funny illustrations and that would, that would be my way of getting through. And I, I cataloged my favorites and uh, one of my favorites of all time uh, was about a couple who'd been married for many years and uh, they were having their 50th wedding anniversary celebration, invited all the friends, had a big spread, big meal, and, and uh, everybody was celebrating this very special day. And finally, the husband got up to make a toast to his wife, and he wanted to make it very special, and he had prepared a lot of remarks, and he was making his speech to her, but he could tell she wasn't hearing anything he was saying. She, she had a little bit of a hearing problem, and her hearing aid wasn't turned quite up far enough, and he was thinking, all the brilliance of my speech to my lovely wife here is being missed. So he decided that the last bit of his toast, he was going to be really loud and make sure she at least heard this part. So, you know, he raises his glass and says, after 50 years, I found you tried and true. And she says, what's that? And he said, after 50 years, I found you tried and true. And she said, I can't hear you. <sighs> after 50 years, I found you tried and true. And she said, well, let me tell you something, Buster. After 50 years, I'm tired of you too. Right? <laughs> So, you know, being in a marriage relationship, there are annoyances, things that eventually over time can make us grow a little weary, uh, and those things are normal, and we experience those as that, and we expect that. But sometimes those things pile up, or sometimes bad things happen in a marriage relationship, hurtful things, deep hurts, that eventually cause a person to get pushed to the edge, to say something like, I want out of this relationship. And I will deal with this every week of my ministry. I'll probably deal with it at some point this week. Somebody will probably come in my office and they'll sit down on the couch uh, across from me and they'll say, I don't want to be in this marriage anymore. I'm, I'm done. I'm out. I'm, you know, I don't feel anything for them anymore. I, I, the love is gone. The feeling's gone. And I'm ready to move on from this relationship. And you may not be there this morning. You might be thinking, wow, I stumbled in on an interesting week because this totally doesn't relate to me. But let me tell you something. Even if you don't go through this, and I hope you never do, somebody that you know and somebody that you love will go through this. And somebody will eventually come to you and they will say, hey, I'm in this relationship and I want out. What advice do you have for me? 40% of Christian people who go to church will talk to their pastor about their relationship falling apart if it is. But it's, it's my conjecture that almost 100% of those people will talk to a friend or family member before I ever see them. So I want to talk to you about the whole I want out thing. First of all, why does it happen? Second of all, what's the best advice that you could either receive or give uh, about that? And like I said, you may have not gone through it, but I will tell you this. We've been through it. Wendy and I have. Um, this has been years and years ago, long before I went into the ministry in the early years of our marriage. And you should know there was nothing illegal or immoral going on in our relationship we, we were faithful to each other. We just couldn't get along. Um, first, 
years of our relationship were very, very, very difficult. And we struggled to communicate, and we had some real conflict issues. We both have Scotch-Irish tempers, we're both a little stubborn, and we both, you know, feel very strongly about our viewpoints, and we would share them with each other, and they didn't always match. I don't know if I have anybody in the room who can relate to this, but we felt very strongly about the way that we felt, and we didn't always feel the same way. And so we'd have these massive conflicts that would escalate and become very, you know, dramatic and upsetting to both of us. And because of those, over time, we begin to start to feel separated from each other. Over time, in those first few years, we begin to develop some separateness in the relationship. And I just, over time, began to think, this can't be what marriage is all about. This isn't what I feel like I signed on for. And beyond that, it's not right for me. It's not right for Wendy. Both of us are not happy. We need to just get out of this thing. And so, as I said, this was... I was still in the automotive industry at the time. I was working in service management. I remember thinking through these things as I was sitting there writing up service tickets. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I can't do this and be working at the same time. So I, I left my podium and I walked into my boss's office and I said, I need a couple weeks off. I, I need, my marriage is unwinding on me. It's, it's falling apart and I need a couple weeks to just end this. And, and so that, you know, and then if you, and then I'll come back after a couple weeks and I'll be on my A game. I'll, you'll have 100% of me again. And, and I said, it'll be the best thing for everybody. And he said, sit down. Now, if your boss tells you to sit down like that, it's probably good that you sit down. And he, he told me, this is not a Christian man, by the way. But he told me, he said, uh, I'm not going to let you do that. He said, I have, I have two girls in my house. At the time, I think his girls were 10 and 12. And he said, um, every day since their mother and I split up has been difficult for me. It's been difficult for them. And he said, I'm not going to let you do this. And he said, so here's what I'm going to do. Now, he handed me an 800 number. The 800 number was for our insurance company for that dealership that I was at. They had a special 800 number you could call to make an appointment with a therapist. And he said, I'm not letting you out of this office before you call that number. Now, I actually don't think that's legal. I'm pretty sure there are a couple HR regulations against doing this, but he did stand outside the door until I made the phone call. And I did, and I called, and they asked me, do you have any preference for you know, who you would see? And I said, well, I'd like you to be a Christian therapist. So I got the first person that this other person on the other end of the phone picked out for me out of their list of therapists that had Christian with the checkbox check mark. And I didn't have a lot of hope. I wasn't expecting much, but I figured I might as well give it a shot. We went into the office, Wendy and I, and we sat down on the guy's couch, and he said, just to start off our session today, I want to ask you a question, scale of one to 10, about how much you're in this thing. 10 meaning there is absolutely nothing that could convince me to leave. I am 100% completely, totally committed to this marriage. I'm in it for the long haul no matter what. One being if there was a divorce lawyer standing outside the door of this office, you would sign papers on your way out. Wendy said she was an eight. I said I was a two, and I meant it. You say, Jonathan, that doesn't really square with my image of you. Well, let me tell you something. First of all, as I said, it's been several years since, but I will also tell you this. Little things in marriage can snowball until they become really big things, and they can almost push you over the edge. So that's why I'm saying, if, you're, if, if you either have experienced this, you are experiencing this, somebody that you know and love is experiencing this, I can tell you my experience won't be the same as yours, or won't be the same as somebody that you know who's going through it, but I do know that it hurts. I do know it's painful, and I do know it can be difficult to see light at the end of the tunnel. 
Now, I will tell you, and you can probably guess this, the story ends quite well. Uh, Wendy and I, God somehow just sent us to the right counselor within the period of six weeks, really. We saw our relationship go from as bad as it was to substantially the relationship we have now. God has really grown us over the years, and we've experienced a lot of forward movement, but really the biggest change that ever happened in our relationship happened over the course of a month and a half all those many years ago. And, and, and this isn't part of my message, but I will just tell you that any two people who really want to see their marriage work, if they're willing to put work into it, it's amazing how fast God can turn that thing around. But because I've been through it and because I care, I want to talk to you about this very important moment, this very important crisis moment. I've seen it from both sides. I've seen it before when it was getting ready to happen to us. I've seen it now after looking back on it. And so I just want to talk to you about some universals, because one thing I know is that I cannot speak to every specific situation that you will encounter or somebody that you know will encounter. So I just want to try to talk about the things that I think are, are kind of universal in this. First of all, I think people, people want out for one of two reasons. Certainly, this is the case with marriage. The first reason is I'm not happy. I just don't feel what I feel like I should feel in this relationship. I just don't experience happiness from them anymore. And certainly we expect to be happy when we get into the relationship. The dating experience kind of advertises that. When we're dating, we go through that hormonal euphoria, that high that everything is wonderful, they're wonderful, all roses and smiles and sunshine, and everything is really great. So much so that it's very difficult for us to see the bad in the other person. If somebody were to tell you, oh, well, they, you know, I see this and it's a red flag with them, or, you know, or even something as, as simple as, man, I didn't like the way they handled that, you'd be the first person to rush to their defense and say, no, you've totally misjudged them. Because that's the way dating works. We're so happy. And this is what I think a lot of us don't realize. We go, most of us go into the dating process feeling that we're missing something. We go into the dating process thinking that, that there's part of us that, that is missing, there's part of us that is lacking, and we're going to go out and find the person that's going to bring the magic combination to the relationship that is going to complete me. It's going it's, it's to make the relationship right, and I'm going to experience happiness. I do premarital coaching now in classes, not in one-on-one -on -one as I used to do. But back when I was doing it one-on-one, -on -one, my favorite first question to ask couples when they would come in is, why do you want to get married? And it's kind of a little fun I would have with them anyhow, because when a couple comes in for premarital coaching, and if it's one-on-one, -on -one, it's a little you know, nervous anyway. It's first session. They don't really know you. They're sitting down. They don't know what you're going to ask. They're very concerned that somehow you're going to you know, grade them with an F, and they won't get to get married. And so they're, all, they're always wanting to make sure they give you all the right answers. And so you throw out a question at the beginning, like, why do you want to get married? And the poor groom-to-be is sitting there going, I didn't prep for this one, you know? Um, but I would ask the question, and he would say, well, because I love her. I want to get married to her because I love her. And I would say, that is so awesome. That is wonderful. What do you mean when you say, I love her, right? And without fail, I will now get a list of all her positive attributes. Well, because she's funny, and because she's nice, and she's great to be with, and she's generous and wonderful to other people, and, you know, he'll give me this long list, and I'll say, that is so awesome, and I really think you should write all those things down, because keeping a track of a list of all of her positive attributes will serve you well in marriage. But... But what I'm saying is, why do you, what do you mean when you say, I love her? And if we, keep doing, if we keep going round and round on this, eventually we will get down to, he will say, I don't know, it's just a feeling I have when I'm around her. It's just a feeling. It's, it, it just it feels right for us to be together. And there's danger in reducing love to a feeling because feelings come and go. 
There's a movie that came out in the 90s. It's not a very good movie. I would not recommend it. But I, I do remember it from my teenage years. It was a movie that, that brought about some of the, it was like the movie that generated the most one-liners of its time in the 90s. Uh, it was a movie called Jerry Maguire. And in the movie, the Tom Cruise character looks at the end of the movie at the Renee Zellweger character. Right? And this is, the, this is the pinnacle moment of the movie. He looks across at her and says, you what? Complete you complete me. And all the women in the movie theater go, aww, right? right? Because that's what we want. We want to be completed. We want to feel that feeling of fulfillment. We want things to feel right. And I think, there's, I think there's some legitimacy to the feelings that we feel that are so good during the dating process. But let me tell you, if I have any people who are dating in this room, it won't always be there. Here's what I think people are saying to me. When they come in and they say, I'm not happy, I think they're realistic. I don't think they're saying, I expect you know, to float around on clouds every day and live life in an amusement park. I think they're just saying, I want to be complete. I want to feel whole. I want to be fulfilled. I want to experience a full life. I want to read you some statements people have said to me in my office because I think it's really important for us to recognize the importance of either living uh, an active or a passive life towards the relationship. Listen to the passivity of these words. Happiness used to be in our relationship, but now it's gone. We fell in love, but now we've fallen out. The spark used to be there when we kissed, but now the spark isn't there anymore. I mean, it's almost as though we're talking about love in our relationships like it's something that enters the room and leaves the room. I, fall, I fell in love. I fell out of love. Those feelings are a very delicate thing. They come and go, and I understand. That's in many places where I was when I told the therapist I was a two. But I didn't really understand that happiness isn't something that you get from a relationship. It's something you bring to a relationship for the purpose of sharing. It is intentionality. It's not passive. It's active. But that's not where I was. I was chasing a feeling. I wanted to experience certain emotions in the relationship, and I wanted to avoid other emotions in the relationship. I think it would be good for a second just to take a little detour and talk about the purpose of emotion. Because I'm a big believer in it. When I, when I work with couples, I, I want to explore their emotions. I want to find out what they're feeling, and we want to talk about why. But you should always know emotions were never meant by God to be little dictators that tell us what to do. Emotions are supposed to be indicators that tell us that something needs addressing. Like when you get in your car and you leave after the service, there are little dash lights right, on your dash, and they're there to let you know when something needs attention. The check engine light comes on, the low coolant light comes on, the oil temperature, uh, 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 the oil pressure sensor light comes on. Those lights are there to tell you that there is a reality under the hood that needs addressing. And so we tend to treat emotions like they're, they're dictators that tell us what to do. We get, I get angry, so I have to yell at somebody. The, the little dictator told me you're angry, so I had to yell. Or, I, don't, I don't feel like there's love in the relationship anymore, so I got to leave. Emotions are not there to tell you what to do. They're there to tell you something needs addressing. So if a couple comes in and tells me the feeling's gone, I want to tell them that means that there is something important happening in the relationship that we need to take a look at. You say, Jonathan... I'm following along with you. You're talking about happiness. You're saying some, some people aren't happy in relationships, and I'm kind of getting the impression that you're trying to say that God doesn't want me to be happy. Are, are you saying that God wants me to be unhappy in this relationship? No, I'm not saying that at all. I do believe that to a certain extent God wants each of us to be happy. Now, frankly, I believe God wants us to be holy more than he wants us to be happy. 
But I believe as a loving father, he wants us to be happy. But it is our responsibility to pursue that happiness the right way. I want to read you this verse out of Psalm chapter 37, verse 4. It says, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. So there's a sense in which God is saying, I want you to be happy. But in case you are wondering, the way that you find happiness is to take delight in the Lord. You, the way that you find happiness is to look for completeness from God. And then we experience happiness. But see, I had all that messed up so many years ago when Wendy and I were struggling. I was doing it this way. Take delight in Wendy and she will give you your heart's desires. That's kind of what I thought we'd agreed to on our wedding day. And we got married right here, right? And we went through all the vows, you know, and sicknesses and health and poverty and wealth and the bad that may darken your days, the good that may lighten your ways and be true to you and all things till death lunch apart. I've done a few weddings, can you tell? <laughs> um, and we went through that, but honestly... Behind those words, I'm thinking, all right, this is the deal for both of us. We're going we're gonna to make each other happy. I'm going to take delight in Wendy, and Wendy's going to fulfill my needs, and Wendy's going to make me happy, and that's what we're agreeing to. And if anything less than that happens in our relationship, I'm going to be disappointed. And God is saying, your gaze is a little low. When you're looking for somebody to make you happy, you're looking across. You need to look up. If you want somebody to make you feel complete, if you want, to make some, if you want somebody who will make you feel whole, you can't look at your spouse. you got to look up to God and say, God, you built me, you made me, you designed me, you understand how I work. And if anybody's going to complete me, you're going to complete me. To expect that from our spouse is to assign to them a God-sized task. And they will always feel like a disappointment. Wendy can meet many of my needs, but she cannot complete me. Look at this verse in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. The Apostle Paul says, May you experience the love of not your spouse. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then, when is then? Then is after you've experienced the love of Christ. Then you will be made complete. Not after you find the perfect person. Not after you read the right relationship books. Not after your relationship hits the right place. No, it's not about that. It is after you experience the love of Christ, then we experience completeness with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Well, we'll come back to the question here of happiness in a moment. I told you there are two reasons people come in and they say they want out. First one is they're not happy. Second one is they say, I don't feel safe. And I'm not talking about physical safety. If you're in a relationship and you're physically unsafe, you need to get out. You get some help from somebody who's a trusted source, and you need to process and figure out what's going on in this relationship, but, but you need to get to safety. But I'm talking about emotional safety. People come in and say, I just don't feel emotionally secure in this relationship, right? Now, I know I've got some guys in the room going, emotional safety, emotional security, wow, could we get any more abstract than this? Well, I'll try to make it concrete. I'll try to make it concrete. I'm a little, I'm a little afraid of heights. Actually, I'm not afraid of heights, I'm afraid of falling from heights. So like I can be up in a very tall building in a skyscraper, you know, and look out and, and enjoy standing by the window and looking out. I think that's really cool. But put me up on top of my roof with that whole pitched angle and nothing to grab onto in case you start falling, and I cannot stand up. I have to sit down on there to put out the Christmas lights. It's, it's, you know, it's after Thanksgiving and I'm scooching around on my rear end on top of my roof and the neighbors come out and laugh. It's like a Christmas tradition. Um, <laughs> So I, I, don't like, I, don't, I don't like being on high places. And so these guys that work on the radio towers or the television towers or they wash windows on skyscrapers, man, these people are my heroes. I mean, it's amazing to me what they're able to do. But they all have something in common. They all wear some sort of fall protection. They all wear some sort of harness. 
Something that's there to catch them in case they take a misstep. Something that's there to catch them in case something bad happens with their rigging or they start to fall. And see, God designed marriage to be a a, a lifeline, a a harness, fall protection for the other person, that we're supposed to be there for each other, not to smother, but to hold the line for them in case they need helping in pivotal moments. But see, sometimes that's not really happening in relationships. And and by the way, let let me backtrack for just a second. I want to tell you about a, a really interesting bit of research done by a professor named Brooke Feeney at CMU in Pittsburgh. I came across her paper a few years ago when I was doing research for another project. And Brooke said that her research proved that people who are in healthily dependent relationships behave with more autonomy than people who are not. And I thought, that makes no sense. You're telling me people in healthily dependent relationships behave more independently. You would think that people who are independent behave more independently. But then it hit me. Think about our guy who's washing windows on a high-rise. Does he take less risks when he's wearing the harness, or does he take more risks? Well, he takes more risks, because he knows there's something there to catch him if he falls. And then it clicked for me. People who are healthily dependent in relationships, meaning they're not smothered, but they are tethered. They have somebody holding the line. People who are in healthily dependent relationships, they do take risks. They feel safe to take risks. They are able to get closer to the line. And I don't mean taking relationship risks. I mean just handling the danger of their everyday life. I mean, all of us know there's a lot of stress and a lot of risk in everything that we do every day. And we feel a lot more able to take that on when we know somebody's got our back. And so sometimes people come in and they tell me, that's what's missing in the relationship. I've got no lifeline. I feel like I can't take risks. I feel like I can't face the danger of the world that I live in because nobody's got my back. We're talking about trust stuff here. I want to read to you a passage out of Proverbs 6. We're going to talk about the seven things that God detests. And I want you to notice every single one of these is a thing that has to do with trust. The Bible says there are six things the Lord hates, no seven things he detests. Haughty eyes, right? Well, that's the first one on the list. It's the hardest one because we don't go around saying this a lot, like saying this person was looking at me with haughty eyes, right? That'd just be weird. Um, But haughty eyes in this this context means somebody who sees themselves as way better than everybody else. They, They overvalue themselves and undervalue other people. So this is the idea that I matter more than you do, and they behave like it. A lying tongue, so we're talking about deception. Hands that kill the innocent. This is a person who's aggressive for no reason. A heart that plots evil, which, now this is important. It is one thing for Satan to lure a person over the line. It is one thing for there to be a line between right and wrong, and Satan lures this person across, and on an impulse they do something they shouldn't do. It is an entirely other thing for that person to sit there and plot how they can do something wrong. It is another thing entirely for a person to be trying to figure out a way to do something wrong and get away with it. It's one of the reasons why I always tell people, hey, if something's going wrong in your marriage and you're doing something that violates the relationship, fess up before the other person finds out. Because that planning to go behind their back is a major, major trust breaker. A false witness who pours out lies. This is a person who not only lies for their personal gain, but they lie and and cause others harm. And then a person who sows discord in a family. All those things are things that speak to trust. Many of us in this room know what it's like in some relationship or another to have been through a trust breakage. And you know that feeling that you get where you think the only person who will look out for me is me. No wonder when that happens, people in a marriage begin to feel separate. They feel like they don't have anybody who's there for them. 
I want to show you why trust is more important in a marriage than anywhere else. In Genesis chapter 2, we have part of the creation account, and God is creating the elements of the universe in which we live. And he, he, as, as he creates one at a time, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. Only at one point does God ever say anything is not good. And that's in Genesis 2.18 where God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Now that word helper is very important and we can't gloss over it because it has two meanings. And both of them apply here. One meaning means a companion, a fellow traveler, a person who goes alongside. Uh, and, and, and I think in just about every culture we get this. I don't think anybody's lost on the idea that marriage means companionship. But the other meaning of the word means a hero. Somebody who's there to help you out if you need help. As a matter of fact, this word is so, it, it's, it's like superhero. It's so much to that extent that this word is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to God. So this is what God has called you to. If you, if you are married and you stood in front of a minister or a judge and, and, and professed your lifelong love to the other person, what you were saying is, I will be for this person for the rest of their life a companion hero. You say, Jonathan, I come to New Spring and I hear a lot about how God is going to be there for me and God is my source of strength and, and all that. And so I don't get it. Is, is my spouse my lifeline or is God my lifeline? I don't get it. The answer to that is yes. God will always be your primary lifeline. God is the person who will give you strength and sustain you. Always, always, full stop. But if you are someone's spouse, you were put in their life to be a flesh and blood extension of God's love and God's grace and God's protection in their life. That is why God, that's why God said it's not good that the man should be alone because Adam not only needed God's presence, Adam would need a flesh and blood extension of God's love in his life. That's a high calling. And if you're a spouse, that's what God has called you to do. And that's why things are so difficult when it's not happening. Well, as I said a, a while ago, your experience may be difficult, may, may be different than it was for Wendy and I. But whether this is about happiness for you or it's about emotional safety, I want to give you a grid. I told you that I, I was going to give you some some ideas, whether this is something that you've gone through or, or are going through, or somebody comes to you for advice. And the reason I want to give you a grid is because there is no one-size-fits-all answer to these questions. So rather than give you an answer, I want to give you three questions. And anybody going through this, I, I have found in my, I've used these three questions now in my office for six years, and I found them to be very helpful in helping people process what to do when they want out. So I'll give them to you one at a time. We'll be done for the morning. Here's question number one. Is the damage irreparable? Question number one is, is the damage irreparable? And I want to take you to Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to test Jesus, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Well, time out. And I talked about this a few weeks ago, but just to let you know what was going on. They had the same problem in Jesus' time that we have now. And that is that if you give people the permission to treat relationships as though they're disposable, they'll do it, and they'll do it in a big way. And so what they had was they had men who would find a woman that he liked, would marry her, spend some time with her, and, and, and once he felt that the thrill was gone, he would take a piece of paper out, give her a bill of divorce, send her off on her own, and go shopping for a new woman. And when he would find her, he would marry her, spend some time with her, wait till the honeymoon wore off, then give her a piece of paper that says, okay, now I divorce you, and he would go out looking for another wife, and this would happen over and over again. And in order to, to prove that what he was doing was okay, he would go back to the law of Moses and say, well, after all, Moses said that we can give our wives a bill of divorce and send her away, so after all, God must be okay with what I'm doing. So the Pharisees, religious teachers, come to Jesus. Really, they were trying to trap him because this was a very politically charged question. 
And they said, hey, is that really how it works? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And I love this. Jesus said, you asked me about divorce. I'm just going to go ahead and give you the, the plan for marriage. Let, let's just let's go over this once again, shall we? Jesus says marriage is to be one man, one woman for one lifetime. And so that pretty much answers your question. You're asking me, can a person just turn loose of somebody for any reason? And I'm telling you, this is the way marriage is designed to work. So they say, yeah, but after all, didn't Moses, he, they said Moses commanded a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. What was all that about? And Jesus said, well, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. And I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. A lot of people have gotten really stuck on this verse. I'm going to try to give you the most clear explanation I possibly can. Um, here's the deal. Again, keep in your mind. We've got these guys who have this revolving door of women coming in and out of their life. And they're using Moses's law as an excuse for what they're doing. We need to understand why Moses gave this law. Because they had two problems at the time. They had infidelity. Hey, that's a problem we still have now. People still cheat on their spouses. So there had to be a way, and, and I truly believe, and we're going to talk about this in a second, I believe if your spouse has been unfaithful to you, if they've gone out and they've pursued a romantic relationship with somebody else, can, can you stay in there and work on it and see it turn around? Absolutely. But you also have the permission to say it's irreparable. Once a person pursues a relationship with someone else, you have God's permission to say this can't be repaired. So that's part of what Moses was addressing. But the other part of what Moses was addressing is he had these guys who were just marrying multiple women because they didn't want to get divorced because it was like, well, God, God doesn't want that. So they would marry this woman, and, and when they got tired of her, they'd marry another woman. But now the first wife, basically, he would act like she didn't exist. She can't go and start a life on her own now because she's still technically his wife. She's stuck with him, but he's not interested in her anymore. He's done with her. So now he's got another woman in the house, and he's treating her like she's garbage. And Moses felt like if he's going to decide to go and be with somebody else, he should at least cut her loose and let her go live her life. And so that's where the bill of divorce came in. It was to deal with people with hard hearts who were just determined they were going to be with whoever they wanted to be with, and it was to deal with infidelity. Those were the two things. So Jesus just reinforces this. Jesus says, if, if, you know, if a guy decides that he just wants to be done with his wife, but she hasn't cheated on him, and he, he wants to do that just because he wants to go be with somebody else, it's the same thing as cheating. But God is clear that was never what was intended from the first place. He's saying, just so you know, divorce was never part of the design discussion. It was never part of the plan for marriage. And he gave a pretty specific criteria. So I believe if you've been cheated on, and I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm reiterating what I said before, I believe if you've been cheated on, and I believe I can make a really strong biblical case for the fact that if you're being physically abused, you have permission to say, yes, this is irreparable damage. But if you're like me, sitting in that therapist's office saying, I just don't feel very good about things right now, and I feel like we're in a really tough place, and I feel like we're on separate planets, God is saying, none of that rises to the level for you to push this relationship off the cliff and call it totaled. I'm going to move on quickly because, man, my time is getting away from me. So that was question number one. Is the damage irreparable? Question number two is, is getting out right now worth more than what I have invested in this relationship? Is getting out right now worth more than what I have invested in this relationship? After World War II, young couples were trying to make a life for themselves. Soldiers were coming home from the war, and they were trying to 
pursue the American dream. And so the, the term was coined the starter house, right? And this is usually a two or three bedroom home, uh, sometimes an older home, usually less expensive, something that a young couple would be able to afford, and generally one that needed some work. But the thought was, it's a young couple, and they're gonna, they're gonna make a home here, so they're gonna invest in it, and they're gonna do a lot of things to make it nice. But you can tell by the word starter home that that should be a clue that we're talking about a home that eventually they will outgrow and go find someplace else to live. In 2002, a book was written that emphasized a new term, starter marriage, right? And it was based on kind of the same principle. This is a marriage where it just didn't work. It was five years or less. There were no kids, no financial entanglements. And a couple basically just says, well, we put some, we put some work into it, but it didn't work, so we're going to go off and find the next relationship. And whether it was the starter marriage phenomenon or something else, the average length of marriage before divorce right now is eight years. And the average age of a person at their time of first divorce is 30 years old. It's so tempting at 30 to think, I finally figured it out. I finally know what I like and what I don't like. I know what kind of personality works with me, and I know what kind of personality doesn't work, and I know what, the kind of person that I need to be with. I finally get it. Now I'm going to leave what I'm doing right now, and I'm going to go find that. But no matter how long you've been married and no matter your history, we need to face facts. You have a lot invested in this relationship. You've lived with this person. You've spent more time with them than anybody else. You know what their likes and dislikes are. You know what makes them sad. You know what makes them happy. You can predict the way they'll respond to things people say or do. You have inside jokes nobody else gets. You have experience with this person. Experience living together, eating together, talking together, fighting together, making up together, making love together, arguing together, laughing together, crying together. And that experience, every second of it, constitutes an investment. If you started something together, began a project, bought a home, spent time together on a hobby, Every bit of work you've put into that constitutes an investment. If you've had a child together, everything that you've learned together as parents constitutes an investment. And anyone considering leaving a relationship needs to ask, is getting out more important than what we've invested? It's a heavy question, and I don't ask it with a pre-presumed answer. Because for some people, the answer will still be no, given their circumstance. But most of us have a lot more invested than we think. And for those of us who are just a little uncomfortable right now in the relationship, we should remember we have a lot together in it. Like most things in life, this is about taking the long look. Philippians 1.6 says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the completion, uh, carried on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. See, when you look at somebody and you look at your relationship with them, you can either choose to look at the problems or you can choose to look at the potential. And what the Bible is saying is that, that God started something in me, and his plan is that he's going to continue doing that relationship with me, and eventually he's going to complete that relationship with me. He's going to stay in there for the long haul, and it's because he sees my potential. He doesn't see my problems. Well, why on earth would God, of all people, a person who is perfect, why would God choose to look at my potential and not my problems? Personally, I think it's because he has so much invested in me. After all, God sent his son to die on the cross so that I could have a relationship with him. I can't imagine a bigger investment. And because he has that investment in me, he says, Jonathan, I believe that we can make this work. We will move forward, and I'm going to complete what I've started in you. Well, I have two minutes left to finish. I'll give you the third question. This is the toughest part of my job because I'll be sitting in my office in an appointment with a couple and one of them will look across at me, and they will have, the person who's talking to me will have a perfect right to leave the relationship. There is grounds for divorce here. And that person will look at me and say, should I? Should I leave? I can't answer that question. 
This is something they've got to search their heart and determine what they believe God wants them to do. But I do give them a question. And as I said, I've used this question for six years, and I believe in it. I take them to this verse, Romans 12, verse 17, or excuse me, verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And based off that verse, I ask this question. Imagine we're having a conversation five years down the road, and I ask you, five years ago, did you do everything that you could? Would you be able to say yes? I'm not asking you, did your spouse do everything they could? I'm not asking you, did you, you know, I'm not asking you what your spouse's responsibility is. I'm speaking to you specifically about your responsibility. Did you do everything that you could? You say, well, Jonathan, that would be pretty harsh to ask somebody that question five years after a meltdown. Hey, I would never ask that. The reason I'm bringing it up is because they will be asking that question in five years. It's not like I'm going to ask you in five years, did you do everything you could? You will ask you in five years, did you do everything that you could? That's why it's so crucial. That's why it's so huge. Truth is, most of us don't want out of a relationship. We just want out of the pain and the tension and the pressure. And in that sense, you're in good company. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, the Bible says, Jesus, going a little farther, fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Here's Jesus, the Son of God, saying, It's not that I went out of the relationship. It's that I went out of the pressure and the tension and the pain. The Bible says that we serve a God who's not untouched with the sorts of feelings that we have. We serve a God who knows what it's like to be, to be headed for a painful situation and, and, and to wish that you didn't have to go through that dark, darkness. And yet, for the sake of the relationship, Jesus continued on for us and paid the ultimate price. You're saying, well, now, Jonathan, are you trying to tell me that if I want to be like Jesus, I have to stay in this relationship no matter what? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that Jesus did everything he could do, everything that was in his power, despite the pain and the pressure and the unpleasantness. And there will be times in relationships where no matter what you do, you cannot save the relationship, just as Jesus cannot save a person who is determined to reject him. But you can do what you can do. This has been a tremendously heavy talk. And I want to close by saying this. There could be someone in this room who would say, you know what, Jonathan, this has been tremendously hard for me to listen to because maybe you're going through this right now. I caught you at a moment in your life where this is particularly appropriate. But because of that, everything I said just threw you for a loop a little bit because the math right now in your life is so complex and you're just trying to put one foot in front of the other. Or maybe you're somebody who would say, I've been through this. I've been through the pain of a divorce. I've been through the pain of a breakup. And this brought up some difficult memories for me. This brought up some difficult emotions. Can I just ask you for a moment? I don't want you to forget everything I've said because I really do think it will help your situation. But I'm going to ask you for a moment to push it aside. And I'm going to remind you that God loves you more than anyone will ever love you. And that no matter what happens in your earthly relationships, you can never, ever, ever, ever lose the love of God in your life. And when you go through these difficult times in relationships, we have God's promise that he will walk with us one step at a time, no matter how difficult. And remember, he is a person you can always trust. He is the lifeline you can always depend on because when it came to the biggest sacrifice anybody's ever been asked to make, he proved that he was there for us, for every single one of us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for allowing me the freedom to handle a very heavy topic today. And I ask that you would 
be with us in these next couple moments of prayer. Heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed. I'm already in overtime, but it's super important to me because we've talked a couple times now about the fact that Jesus is the relationship you can always count on. Jesus is the one who's done everything to prove to you that he has your back, that he is your lifeline. So now I want to give you the opportunity. If you've never started, if you've never reached out to God and accepted his free offer of a relationship, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. I'm going to say the words to a very simple prayer. And you can say this silently in your head to God. And if you do, it'll be settled today. Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you are always there for me. I know I do wrong things. I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I'm choosing to believe in you, Jesus. In your name, amen. All right, everybody look this way just for a moment. If you just prayed that prayer, would you connect with us? We want to give you a packet of materials that we really believe will help you get a good start in your relationship with God. You can take that Talk to Us card, check the box that says, I prayed to receive Christ, take it to guest services, and they have that packet for you. Thank you so much for being here with us this weekend.